0: Hello and welcome to BattleCast. I'm Dr. Luke Wolfe and today we're finishing the epic story of the Boer War. It's a scorched earth. And when I say scorched earth, I want you to imagine whole herds of animals killed and wiped out, not eaten. Just laying and rotten in the open field as long as the eye can see. That's what the British did to deny the Boer guerrillas the food they needed to continue the war. I want you to imagine legions of fires as houses across the Orange Free State and the Transvaal are burned to the ground. The occupants given just 10 minutes to take the most important possessions they had out. And then the entire family farm was burned, the outbuildings, the farms and the house itself. I want you to see these women and children herded into trains like cattle, the rain pelting them as the train sped across the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, and I want you to see the bitterness that wormed into these women and these children's hearts as they were unloaded like animals into concentration camps. Because tonight, we're talking about the birth of one of mankind's most notorious inventions. It's the birth of the concentration camp. Today, tens of thousands of people are going to die in your speakers. Tens of thousands of women and children will lose their lives. Millions of dollars will be spent trying to suppress a war that will not end. And human beings will be driven to the very end of endurance. And on beyond that, it's the Boer War. First, I need to thank Mark from Birmingham. Mark, thank you so much for buying us around tonight. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the make a donation button. And friends, I want to remind you this is part two of a two-part show. If you want to hear the beginning, you should listen to number 36, the episode right before this one. But now, the Boer War and the scorched earth of Southern Africa. All right, last month we stopped at Christmas, 1899, the dawn of a new century and the Boers had just delivered a number of crushing blows to the British in a series of battles and setbacks that the English press dubbed the Black Week. We also recalled that British leadership was intransigent. The world was watching what England would do and the world must see England crush this backwards enemy beneath their heels. Otherwise, what would the millions of colonial subjects across the world do? No, the only plausible way forward was for Britain to utterly subdue the Boers without mercy. There was no other way Britain could maintain her status in the world. For their part, the Boers interpreted their victory in simple Calvinist terms. We were faithful to God, and God gave us the victory. If we remain faithful, he will continue to protect us. The timing seemed only to reaffirm Boer commitments to their faith. The news of their victories had come on the anniversary of the Battle of Blood River, when 10,000 Zulus were defeated by a few hundred Boers. The Boers, some still to this day, celebrate this day as a covenant day called the Day of the Vow, a holy day in the literal sense of the word. In fact, the Fortrecker Monument, the most important monument for the Afrikaner folk, people, has a cenotaph where the sun hits the middle of the building at 12 o'clock on December 16th. It is a day of celebration for devout Afrikaners, and so the Afrikaner leadership played directly to these cultural beliefs of their people. The God of our fathers has given us a great victory, the newspapers proclaimed throughout the Transvaal, and the Boers believed it. But Krier was a statesman. He knew God helps those who help themselves, and so he sent ambassadors genuflecting throughout Europe, desperately trying to get a great power to intervene on the behalf of the Boer Republics. There were many who gave their sympathy. There were none willing to give their blood and so the boers a tiny people were cut off from the aid of the world and according to nicholas spikeman it is inconceivable for a small nation to act independently without the aid of a more powerful nation and yet this is precisely what the boer republics planned to do now was the time to strike Time always favors the side with more money and more men. If the Boers stood any chance of gaining military victory, they had to follow up Black Week with a series of offensive victories and turn Black Week into a Black Month. Kreer demanded that his generals press the offensive, but General Cranier, the commander at Mahersfontein, lamely responded that an offensive was impossible. He was defeated in his mind before he was defeated in the Feld. And to be fair, an assault would be difficult in the flat felled around Cranier. Still, something had to be done. Thomas Pakenham summarizes the two Boer Republic's military situation right after Christmas, 1899. Creer was now committed to fighting a war of attrition against the British. The two Republic's military objectives were now limited to trying to block the progress of the two relief columns... Heading to relieve trapped British forces and at the same time to squeeze the three British garrisons under Boer siege at Ladysmith, Kimberley, and Mafeking. And indeed, for the next few months I'm about to detail for you, there was constant skirmishing around Ladysmith, Kimberley, and Mafeking, but it wasn't decisive. For example, on January 6th, hundreds of Boers assaulted Ladysmith, but the attack was beaten back. The British lost 424 men killed or wounded in the fighting. The Boers lost considerably more. We don't know the exact number. The problem was the British could replenish these losses in the long run, and the Boers could not. To us, looking back from today, the Boer strategy of attrition seems almost certain to fail, but Creer would fight anyways. Like a second Theoden, they would stop the British and make them come to the peace table or die trying. If only they had known how right they were, many Boer women and children would die trying. Meanwhile, Buller was still pressing home his advance to relieve Ladysmith, and if you remember from last month, he just had his head kicked in by the Boers at the Battle of Kalinzo, and he sat there for the last three weeks regrouping and trying to figure out a way over the Boer line, which was entrenched along the Tagala River, formidable defensive works to say the least. On January 16th, Buller's army crossed the Tagala River. It had recently flooded and the Boers were afraid they would be cut off from resupply so they had abandoned the South Bank, whereupon 500 English soldiers swam the river and took a small ferry crossing on the north side. This bridgehead was slowly expanded without any major problems and the rest of the army poured across the river. Now the only thing between Buller and Ladysmith was a mountain range. Slowly, too slowly, the British spread their lines in a parallel of the Boer trenches. Meanwhile, approximately 4,000 Boers, and I've seen many different figures for the Boer forces from many different sources, so I'm ballparking them at 4,000. So these 4,000 Boers are entrenched in a mountain range on the border of Natal province. And the only way the English are going to get through is to go over the mountains and through the woods like they're going to Grandma's house. The key to the whole position was a hill called Spienkop. For a little more than a week, the British forces screened Spienkop taking their time, worrying like a good mother whose son has just gone to college, what they should have done, as Buller himself admitted in his memoirs, was rush the Boer mountain lines before they had a chance to reinforce themselves, but there was a cautious general named Warren commanding the British forces, and he delayed while the Boers turned Spion Kop into an elevated fort Knox. Now Spion Kop is the largest hill in the region. It commands the position. And everyone knew the English needed to go around it. But Warren, the turtle slow general, decided to attack it straight on, sending his men into the teeth of the Afrikaners' entrenched firing position. He might as well have sentenced his men to the death squad. The attack began at night. The initial English assault called for 2,300 men to attack straight up the mountainside. The troops gathered in the dusk of twilight at 8.30 p.m. in a gully six miles away from Spienkop. So they're going to march while keeping their formation over six miles in pitch blackness up one of the steepest hills in Natal and then attack and defeat well-entrenched Boer forces who have done nothing all day except lay around and eat. Needless to say, it was a tall order. Everything hinged on surprise. Predictably, the English made slow progress. They reached the bottom of the hill at midnight, and many of the men were already exhausted. Whenever the column stopped, the men would lay in the grass and fall asleep. At 3 o'clock in the morning, the British began to spread out in battle formation. The soldiers were still forming up when a shout reverberated through the night. A shout that made the hair of men's arms stand on end like the fretful porcupine. Eyes wide like a woman upset with her man-breaking social convention. The preternaturally loud voice said, "Werta." Who is that in German? A British officer shouted back, Waterloo! And then every Englishman on Spian Cop copulated with the dirt as Boer sent A zigzag line of fire that looked like a string firework. Streaming into the British position, you could actually see the muzzle blast from the Boer firearms. A thousand Thor sending a thousand lightning bolts from a thousand Mjolnir hammers. Carefully, the British pickets crept forward, and then their hearts leapt like a soldier who finally kisses his woman after being deployed for nine months. The Boers had fled. The hill was theirs. The night attack surprise had worked. In the mistrouded night, the Englishmen quickly began to reinforce their hill with a 300-yard trench. They even cheered their victory, and the officers sent word back to Buller, We've taken it! Spian cop is ours! But as the Englishmen celebrated their victory, General Botha stared statue-faced at the men who had just lost the hill. It must be retaken, he laconically replied at the news of the Boer loss, and he promptly sent men up to retake the cop. Now, the men who went to retake the hill didn't march up there. They flew up there the way a drug addict runs home after buying his hit. In effect, taking the entrenching British by surprise, who never expected a counterattack so quickly. And the men leading them was Hendrik Prinsloo, commandant of the Carolina Commando. His troops formed a semicircle around him, the way football teams take a knee and listen to their coach at halftime. And he gave a short pep talk to his commandos, worthy of a Hollywood blockbuster, quote, Men, we're going up there to attack the enemy, and we will not be coming back. Do your duty and trust in the Lord." And all night long, Bata scraped and scratched out reinforcements for Prince Lu, ultimately pulling 1,000 men from his 4,000-strong force to retake this essential hill. Consequently... When the night fled the field and took the mist with it, the dawn revealed an almost perfect day, the kind of day that Tony Bennett sings about. Not a cloud in sight, and the English on Spienkop found themselves nearly surrounded. There were strong Boer positions in front of and on both sides of the English. You see, the British hadn't taken all of Spienkop. In the night, they had not seen that the hill extended for scores of yards in front of them. Think of it this way, the British had taken the front of a theater stage. Now the Boers had set up along both wings in the back of the stage, ready to deliver a hammer blow to the Englishmen who thought they had captured all of the stage. What was worse is the Boer artillery on surrounding hills were able to dial in on the English. Soon they would pepper a dash of death to the main course their comrades on the hill were setting for the British, Dennis Rietz. An eyewitness details Bota's counterattack like this, quote, The counterattack had begun. Three or four hundred men, mainly from the Carolina and Pretoria commandos, were clambering up the grassy slope. cop. Though steep, is much lower on this northern side, and the ascent itself was not difficult for men carrying only rifles and bandoliers, but the British manned the crest line. Many burgers dropped, shot by invisible marksmen. Others reached the crest line, and Reitz saw the British soldiers suddenly rise up from behind the rocks to meet the rush. There was a moment or two of confusion. Then the struggling figures surged over the rim of the plateau and were lost to view. Reitz dismounted, tied up his horse and the rest, and started to clamber. Up the slope in search of his comrades. He found them all along the way up the hill. John Mallerb, with a bullet through his eyes. His own tentmate, Robert Rinicky shot through the head. De Filiers, dead. He was another member of the original corporalship. As was Tati Kriye. Jan Smuts, brother in law, shot through both lungs but still alive, <gasps> gasping for air. And Walter DeFosse, another tentmate, hit in the chest. But somehow, smiling bravely, the counterattack had been led by the Carolina Commando and the rocks on the crest line were strewn with their dead. But the rocky top of the hill was littered with Boer dead and this was a small community. The men knew the dead personally. They had grown up with them, gone to church with them, married their sisters. Now their best friend's faces were being transformed into Jackson Pollock graffiti on the cliffside. One author said Spian Cop was turned into a gory horror movie of pulp faces, headless trunks, and men fighting like animals. The Boers thought they were losing. Some men melted away, silently abandoning the position they had so heroically captured in the morning. But they weren't losing. That was the great irony. The English officers on the hill were falling faster than Zimbabwean inflation. The British defenses were all wrong. They left the Englishmen exposed like playboy centerfolds. They were taking terrible losses. And to Corporal Will McCarthy, the battle was more like a nightmare. I got into the trenches and laid down at the side of bodies without heads, legs, or arms. It was terrible, I can tell you, and it was enough to completely unnerve the bravest of men. But I wasn't the bravest of men. But we had to stick to it. I'd been laying there I think about half an hour when BANG went a shell at my back wounding me. I thought my back was blown away. And for the first time in the war, the Boer Gunners had a nice old-fashioned target. One man said it was the most awful scene of carnage he had ever seen. We had no guns, and the enemy's long tom swept the hill. Shells rained in among us. The most hideous sights were exhibited. Men blown to atoms. Joints torn asunder. Headless bodies Trunks of bodies, awful, just awful. You dared not lift your head above the rock or you were shot dead at once. Everything was utter confusion. Officers were killed or mixed up in other regiments. The men had no one to rally them and became demoralized, end quote. By this time, the men on top of the hill were fighting hand to hand. One English soldier poked his rifle around a rock without looking and felt something soft. He pulled the trigger and exploded the lumpy bowels of a Boer soldier across the brown dirt. The exposed insides resembled Hormel chili with beans. And For hours, the battle ebbed and flowed across the top of the hill, Small groups of English soldiers would skirmish forward only to be pushed back by the withering inferno of Afrikaner fire. And when Colonel Thornycraft, the leader of the men on the hill, led a group of 40 men over the trench he found three severely wounded officers with their men dead or dying lying all around him. One officer named Newman was wounded twice and could barely move. He propped himself up against a rock and fired until a third bullet thunder clapped his forehead off. Almost all of Thornycraft's men were killed. He was only saved by impregnating himself into the ground, and by noon the Boers were dominating the position. There was a German named Von Bruswitz, a Prussian officer who fought like a samurai. He was simply heedless of death. Dennis Rietz, who fought with von Bruswitz, explains what happened among the Mars like boulders of Spienkop. Quote. Von Brusewitz fought next to me on Spee and and he seemed to be intent on getting himself killed. I had never seen anything like it. He repeatedly stepped out from cover of rocks to fire on the English like a hunter, taking a shot at a grazing gazelle, as if a battle wasn't raging around him. We told him over and over again not to do it. He was going to get himself killed, and he laughed at us and cursed us, calling us little girls and cowardly swine. Kicking the men near him, picking up some, and throwing them out from cover, laughing like a pervert while he did it. And indeed, many a British soldier felt Von Bruswitz still that day. But then the inevitable happened. I saw him rise once more and, lighting a cigarette, puff away, careless of the flying bullets, until we heard a wet thud, and he fell dead within a few feet of me. The front of his forehead held a clean red hole, and the back of his head had ceased to exist. It was just a meaty red spaghetti stew. An English news reporter observed the battle and described it like this, I saw three shells strike a certain trench within a minute. Each struck it full in the face and the brown dust rose and drifted away with the white smoke. The trench was toothed against the sky like a saw, made, I supposed, of sharp rocks built into a rampart. Another shell struck it, and then, heavens, the trench rose up and moved forward. The trench was men. The teeth against the sky were men. They ran forward, bending their bodies into a curve. They looked like a cornfield with a heavy wind sweeping over it from behind, quote. All morning, the British fed reinforcements into the meat grinder on the top of the hill. So many men were pumped into the fight that it delayed the English attack on the right flank. Winston Churchill was there, and this is what he saw. Men were staggering along alone, or supported by comrades, or crawling on hands and knees, or carried on stretchers. Corpses lay here and there, the splinters and fragments of shell, had torn and mutilated in the most ghastly manner. I passed about two hundred while I was climbing up. There was, moreover, a small but steady leakage of unwounded men of all bodies of troops. Some of these cursed and swore. Others were utterly exhausted and fell on the hillside in stupor. Others again seemed drunk, though they had no liquor. Scores were sleeping heavily. Fighting was still proceeding, End quote. Still, the battle went back and forth across the acre of massacre on top of the hill. Hundreds of Englishmen surrendered, hundreds more stepped into the next life, but still, the English fed reinforcements into the death kettle. At four o'clock, the British finally made a diversionary attack on the Boer left flank at a place called Twin Peaks, an essential strong point for the Boer line. The Boers knew they had to hold it, and if the world was fair, they would have held it. But the world is not fair, and the Boer people were a small nation, while the English were legion. And so the Boers, stretched thin from holding the line on Spiankop were unable to stem the English advance on Twin Peaks. The British literally had to scramble up the cliff face on hands and knees to get to the top, and they took terrible casualties, but there were enough of them to drive off the Boers. While the capture of Twin Peaks wouldn't affect the battle that single day, the Boers would have to choose to either retake the position or abandon the entire mountain line. For his part, Boto was determined to see the battle through and die on the hills. But there were few with bat-bones of steel like him. Many Afrikaans officers began to abandon the line. For most of the Boer officers, the battle seemed utterly hopeless. But then something amazing happened. At midnight, British Colonel Thornycraft in charge of the men on top of Spee and Kop who had held the acre of massacre against all odds while the angel of death ran through their lines like the streets of Egypt. This same demigod decided no reinforcements were coming and that his men were all dying for nothing. Twelve hours of unbroken trench warfare had finished him. The men were being turned into tomato soup all around him. There was no water. Ammunition was low. No, it was better to save the men he could rather than lose them all in the morning. 234 Englishmen had died on top of the hill. Over a thousand more were wounded or taken prisoner. The Boers, for their part, had lost about 330 men in the fighting. And the next day, Buller felt he had no choice. He retreated back across the Tagola River. The Boers, that tiny nation, had once again beaten back the combined strength of the world's largest formal empire. Not even they could believe they had won. Napoleon once said the winning side in a battle is the one that makes the least mistakes. At Spienkopp, the Boers proved him right. Less than two weeks later, Buller was relieved from command. There would be no more mistakes. Now it was Britain's turn to prove Napoleon's maxim. February 11, 1900 marked a turning point in the war. From now on, there would be a new British overall commander. He was Field Marshal Lord Frederick Roberts, and he said about steamrolling the Boer forces back across the Felt. From now on, there would be no more ebbs and flows. It would just be a flow, a giant wave of British forces from one side of South Africa to the other, communications from the entire world pumped into Lord Robert's battle lines, more food than the Boers had ever dreamed of, more ammunition than they had ever seen. My hot, the Boers said when they saw the endless supplies. Some Boers, using their superior maneuverability, might avoid the British trap for a time but some would not. Moreover, no Boer city would survive uncaptured. No more English forces would be besieged. No, it was the Boers' turn to fill the constant pangs of hunger in their bellies. Now, Dr. Shula Marx, writing in the Cambridge History of South Africa, gives a great overview of this part of the war, so I'll just quote her quote. From now on, the Boers turned the fighting into a defensive war of position, based on besieging British garrison positions, and what turned into a demoralizing and futile occupation operations. Not only did this stop commando forces from campaigning to their established strengths of maneuverability and speed, it gave their imperial adversary breathing space, thus handing over a great deal of initiative in organization and planning, and allowing the British time to recover and to ship in massive reinforcements for an invading. Counteroffensive against the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Determined to turn the tide, by early 1900, British command had amassed an imperial field force of more than 180,000 troops, an invading army whose size was already virtually that of the combined White citizenry of the republics, waging a methodical and increasingly ruthless campaign. Britain's new chief commander Field Marshal Lord Roberts with Lord Kitchener as his chief of staff forced Republican opponents back into their territories, relieving the British forces besieged in Ladysmith and Kimberley in the process, freeing further English forces for the advance on Bloemfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State." Now the focus of the war shifted to the west. On the western border of the Orange Free State, there Lord Roberts had already relieved Kimberley and was now set to invade the Free State itself. It was the job of the 62-year-old Boer General Pete Cranier and his 5,000 Boer citizen soldiers to stop him. On February 15th, Cranier had begun his retreat, leading a five-mile-long column of wagons and cavalry away from Kimberley eastward towards Bloemfontein and the heart of the Free State. If Cranier didn't speed up, he would find himself in a fight he didn't plan and he couldn't afford to lose. And that's just what happened. Cranier, in a move of total baffling indecision, simply stopped and allowed Roberts 30,000 troops to catch up to his 5,000 men. Cranier should have desperately linked up the forces in his area. He should have moved to a better position, but no. Many tens of thousands of innocent children would die because of his poor generalship, not to mention many fighting men. He was only 20 miles away from one of the ultimate Boer fortresses at Mahosfontein. The fortress... Might as well have been on the moon for the good it did Cranier. Two nights after they had left the trenches surrounding Kimberley, Cranier halted the column and gave the order for his men to dig new trenches into the muddy, 30 feet steep banks of the Modder River. Here would be the final epic battle of the Boer War. Here the fate of the Boer people. The fate of the Reformed Church in Africa. The fate of countless thousands of Boer children playing hundreds of miles away from the front line. Here their fate would be decided. And even now around the world, the fate of other peoples and other children are decided. The world is not Starbucks and iPhones. The world is not pithy statements on Twitter or the smiling clowns on Facebook. The endless waste of taxpayers' money. The endless party. Interminably being advertised on Instagram, these are nothing more than the intermission of the great play that never ends, that is always running and always leaves critics speechless. It is the play of history, which will never end, unless the supernatural reimposes itself upon the world, and one day history will come for you and your children. And so it came for Cronier and the Boer people. On February 18, 1900, the Battle of Pardeburg commenced. Cronier had set his men up in a circular pattern of heavily entrenched positions. His line looked like a capital D, with the straight part of the D along the line of the Matter River. Roberts set his second in command in charge of operations, Horatio Kitchener. Kitchener's plan was to attack the Boers at multiple points along the circle of their entrenchments and then overwhelm them. What he didn't anticipate was the depth of the Boer entrenchments. They were all but impregnable to infantry assaults. And he didn't understand that modern technology had swung the advantage of war to the defensive. The British would be taking a sample of what the entire world would taste in World War I, if only they had learned from it. And Kitchener was full of self-confidence. He actually reminded me of Logan, Rory's boyfriend in the later seasons of Gilmore Girls, Rich gone to all the best schools, habituated to command from an early age. He actually bragged to his staff in the morning, right now at 7 o'clock, we'll be in the Boer's command post by half past 10. No, many of his men he sent would be at the White Throne of Judgment at half past 10. At 8 o'clock, the first wave of British soldiers swarmed over the naked plain, exposed as co-eds on Panama City's beach. Walking ahead of them towards the Boer lines were the shells of scores of artillery, throwing up spouts of earth the way old faithful sends water skyrocketing into the air. And the men who were lobbing themselves at the Boer's front line were worn-out men. They had been marching since 5 o'clock the previous day, marching for endless hours, and now they were jogging into the teeth of hell itself. They had never even had a chance to refill their water bottles. Many were already stumbling under the effects of dehydration in the African sun. First to hit the concentrated firepower of the Boer Trench Works were the first Welsh and first Essex. They were cut down faster than governments create regulations. Soon they were pinned down, the earth pinging around them with the sounds of metal tearing the ground all around them, whistling past their ears, biting chunks out of exposed limbs. They could barely even see the Boers, let alone assault the Boer entrenchments. The Yorkshire Regiment got within two football fields of the riverbank, but they had started their assault with a battle line that resembled a slice of provolone cheese, and by the time they were pinned down, they were just a slice of Swiss, all holes, dead men choked on dirt their cracked lips gaping, their tongues like sandpaper in their mouths. Many would suffer there all day. One man was shot in the spine and paralyzed from the waist down. He had fallen into the large earthen mounds of an African ant hill, and the ants fought for the boars that day. They devoured first his legs and then his waist, and next they devoured his mind because he blacked out from the anguish. However... One group of light infantry advancing in extended line over broken ground with some cover were able to take a few outlying trenches on the southern bank of the Madre river, and the battle raged like that on and on, the English assaulting the Boers like phantoms, firing from the earth itself, striking them down like bowling pins until they simply dropped and skirmished with the Boers from a distance, all while Kitchener lackadaisically gazed out on the battlefield. Why the devil are we not breaking through? he said to his staff. Here's how one modern historian described the battle. It was an endless duel with snipers flat on the face behind an ant heap where the flash of a canteen on the hip or a hand stretched out to scratch an ant bite could bring instant bullet-infused laceration. All this under an African sun that burnt the backs of the men's legs as raw as meat. And the men lying, tortured with thirst, nailed down a hundred yards behind the cool, dark waters of the Mater River, so close, yet as far away as hell itself from them, End quote. At midday, the attack had petered out and the British began to filter back to their starting positions. At one o'clock, Kitchener sent a new wave of human limbs into the stump grinder, ordering the exhausted men to resume the human wave assault on Cranier's surrounded and cut-off lines. This was more than a bad order. It was more akin to murder. Because the Boers were in such a terrible position, he could have entrenched and forced them to attack him to break out or let them starve in their little lager. Instead, it was in the afternoon when a tragedy happened. A boer gun had found the range to some English tents and poked holes in the tents with one-pound shells the way children poked their pencils through lined school paper. It was a hospital tent. The shells fragmented inside the tent like a bouquet of fireworks. Imagine the most splintering fireworks you've ever seen. Now put yourself into the middle of the explosion in the sky. That's what happened to the men in the infirmary. The wounded were now wounded afresh, the doctors bleeding with the patients. Wounded men tried to crawl out of the tents to get away from the shelling. Many men had their legs amputated after they were wounded from flying shell fragments. No one could find the ether There was no pain medicine. The legs were sawn off until the victims blacked out, the pain causing their stomachs to worm into their eyeballs. Again, Kitchener issued yet another direct order for his men to attack the right flank head-on. The officer in charge of the men who were supposed to lead the attack, Colonel Haney, who received the written order, blinked when he read it. It couldn't be real. Kitchener had written, The time has come for a final effort. All troops must rush the logger at all costs. If the men won't go, the mounted horsemen will go. Gallop up to the Boer lines and fire into the logger. He knew it was suicide. He knew before he began the attack would fail. He sent away his staff on various make-work jobs to save their lives. Then he buckled on his sword and swung his rifle close to his chest like he was gripping a lovely woman rather than the cold blue steel of a firearm. And he turned to his mounted soldiers and laconically said, We're going to attack the line. Then he mounted his horse and galloped forward. They rushed the logger like Faramir in the return of the king. They were easy pickings for the Boer marksmen. One man was gripping the mane of his horse when suddenly the horse's head exploded under his hand. A hot tomato gelatin spilling all over him before sending him over the exploded head and into the rock stabbing dirt. The men didn't even get closer than 200 yards. Henei had died like he knew he would. He had greeted death with a shrug. He died for you, you Englishmen listening to this. That was the strength of your forefathers. They didn't hang around council estates drinking high-gravity lager and dying from drug addiction. Your fathers died in the service of Mars, cut down by steel, but you die in the service of Bacchus, cut down by riotous orgies of pleasure, pornography, and opioids. Is one god really better than the other one? And at 5.15, yet another line of infantry, who were pinned down all day, rose up and charged straight at the Boer lines, cheering as they ran. A wave gathers strength as it nears the shoreline, and then, right before it falls, it seems to stand still in an interminable cresting, But then the fall inevitably comes. Such is the way the British infantry waved out towards the Boer forces. A few wounded men sliding into the fringes of the Boer lines like the foam of the salty ocean on Florida's white sandy beaches. And as the sun painted the sky pink, even Kitchener conceded the battle was lost. The English had lost 1,270 casualties, about 300 killed and another 960 wounded or missing. The Boers had lost just 100 killed and 250 wounded. But the Boers were a small people. Each loss, like a factory shutting in a small town, is felt all the more. There's no other place to work. And just so, there were no other men to replace these losses. Spirit can withstand the resources of the world. It can delay them. It can thwart them. It can leave the empires of the world's heads reeling from the losses. But if the empire is strong, and the Empire continues fighting, the numbers will tell, the spirit will fall, almost always. And so the Boers were no different. At the end of the day, Cronier was still cut off, and his men were still shaken to their core. They had stood all day in foxholes while the air screamed with iron, and the earth quaked around them in a perpetual earthquake, as ceaseless as Sauron's unblinking eye. The English bombardments had smashed many of the men's large covered wagons, which held everything the men possessed. Talk about demoralization. I want you to imagine losing everything you have except the clothes on your back. It's demoralizing. How could it not be? Worse still, the Boers' essential lifeline, their horses, were massacred in the artillery barrages. Their horses were some of their most valuable property. Now most of them were dead. Already thousands of them were bloating and putrefying in the blazing African heat. That's when Cranier requested a truce to bury the dead, and the truce was refused. Cranier then sent a defiant message. If you are so uncharitable as to refuse me a truce, then you may do as you please. I shall not surrender alive. Therefore, bombard as you will. Less than a week later, after constant bombardment from the English guns, 4,069 Afrikaners surrendered to the British. The road was now wide open to Bloemfontein, and from there to Pretoria. It was the first great English victory in the war. Many of the Boers were sent across the world to far-flung outposts of the British Empire to rot in prisoner of war camps. The women and children who were left soon would feel the bitter sting of war. Meanwhile, on the other side of South Africa, the English pushed through the Tagola line and relieved Ladysmith. They then pressed on to Standerton, on the southern border of the Transvaal, and after Pardiburg, Roberts and his 15,000 men simply walked into Bloemfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State. No one could believe how easy it was after all the fuss of the previous six months. All the Boers were gone, their capital was all but deserted. The English officers had a victory party at an English club. It was all smiles and champagne, finger sandwiches and glad handing. The war was now practically over. Just one more push and they'd be back home in time for summer. In point of fact, the war was actually going to drag on for another two years. But no one knew it at the time. On March 15th, Roberts offered an amnesty for every free state citizen except the leaders. All they had to do was return home and swear allegiance to Britain. There were still about... 35,000 Boers in the field, but then a typhoid outbreak struck thousands of the English in and around Bloemfontein. Moreover, supply problems slowed the British advance towards Pretoria via Bloemfontein to a crawl. At the same time, the Boer leadership held a war council a 100 miles away from Bloemfontein at a small crossroads called Kroonstad. Everyone who was anyone was there. Presidents Creer and Steyn, General Tavet, Pete Yobert, everybody. General DeVette had taken the unbelievable course of letting his soldiers go on a ten-day leave. DeVette knew what he was doing for the war he was planning. He would need only willing men, men who wanted to fight more than they wanted to lay in their beds next to their women. Bitter men who could fight a bitter war to the bitter end, a guerrilla war. DeVette point-blank told the council, It's better to have ten men who really want to fight rather than a hundred men who shirk their duties. Then DeVette explained the principles of the new guerrilla phase of the war as the leadership of an entire people listened on. First, they would weed out the men who were unreliable and endangered everyone else who really wanted to fight. Second, they would no longer carry supplies or be hampered by a supply system. They would live off the land fed by their own women and children from farm to guerrilla table. Third, they would follow Sun Tzu's maxim, an attack where the enemy is weak, never where he is strong. Consequently, they would raid far into the enemy's rear. The new plan was already working. Boers operating according to DeVette's new tactics had captured 180 British wagons at Waterval Drift. Moreover, the advance of all the British, all their food and all their ammunition depended on one railroad track, which was hundreds of miles long, attacked the umbilical cord and the British babe would wither on the vine. That's when a man who hadn't spoken for hours, whose long beard was unkempt and his clothes were worn and ragged from constant travel, a man who was more like a patriarch from the Old Testament than a leader of men in the field, this man stood up, And here is what one writer had him say for hours I have heard all of you complain and what's worse the complaints in your hearts and the looks in your eyes don't you know that this is all God's plan remember the voice of scripture when Daniel praised the most high and he honored and glorified him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the peoples of the earth are counted as nothing and he does as he pleases with the army of heaven and the peoples of the earth there's no one who can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? That same god has willed Bloemfontein to fall, and Pretoria with it. The men in the audience gave each other wide-eyed looks, mass of apprehension. But Pretoria hasn't fallen yet, one man shot back. De La Ray was apocalyptic. It's already fallen in your mind! It's already fallen in your lack of faith! Many of you whisper to one another, The war's over! We can do nothing. But I tell you now this day, the war has just begun. If you had the faith of our fathers, you could move mountains. Instead, you only see the English trains bringing supplies and endless lines of men. Good! That is more men for us to kill. That's more men for our Lord to give us the victory. Give to vet the leadership you've already lost by your actions. Why are we meeting in Kronstadt and not in Bloemfontein? Because your tactics have failed. Now step aside! when the audience heard dela rey they said let it be as you command then dela rey stepped aside and let devet take back over the meeting he said nothing for the rest of the council more a statue than a man most of the Boer leaders agreed to a new war strategy especially general Kurs De dela rey one of the most daring and successful guerrilla generals in the war dela rey and devet were already planning the first strike of the new strategy They would strike the English in column formation. A large column, led by De La Rey, would drive southwards in the direction of Bloemfontein to entice the enemy out of the capital. Meanwhile, Tafet's Free State men would swoop down to the southeast, join hands with General Olivier's 6,000 men, and together strike the British lines of communication faster than a woman stomps the head of a snake. In March 1900, Tafet struck His first target was a British column of 1,700 men with 92 resupply wagons. DeVette descended on them with 2,000 horsemen, and the cocky British obligingly walked right into DeVette's trap. They hadn't even sent out scouts to protect the column. First, DeVette cut off the advance party of 200 men with the 100-strong supply wagons. Meanwhile, two miles away, the main British force learned... They were surrounded, outnumbered and cut off by the Boers, and the Boers were simply gathering up the British column as they forded a river, one by one, until an officer named Phipps Hornby took over and formed a rearguard to protect the rest of the column. This one man saved the majority of the English forces that day. He had saved the men and most of the artillery, but 430 Englishmen were taken prisoner and seven English guns were were captured DeVette had scored his victory the new tactics were working but DeVette didn't stop he pressed on raiding southward picking up recruits as he went he attacked a convoy of 600 men on April 3rd the two sides fought for 24 hours straight but the entire English column surrendered Forty-five men were killed or wounded. The rest, 550, were taken prisoner and sent north. In two weeks, Wet had killed or captured more than a thousand men. But Wet's victories, though substantial, merely delayed the advance of General Roberts' army. On May 3rd, Robert set out for Pretoria with 43,000 men, while another force struck northwest to relieve the English garrison at Mafeking. In the middle of May, the garrison at Mafeking was relieved after a terrible six-month siege. The next few weeks led to a series of British victories. On May 28th, the Orange Free State was formally annexed and rechristened the Orange River Colony. Roberts then sent 20,000 men raiding Afrikaner farms and taking their firearms and horses away, thereby ensuring Devet could not raise more troops. On May 30th, after a small set-piece battle called Dornkop, the Boers abandoned Johannesburg and headed north towards Pretoria, dragging the last of the gold and anything of strategic value with. Them. On May 31st, Roberts entered Johannesburg without firing a shot. Meanwhile, on June 2nd, Jan Smuts, the famous Afrikaner state attorney, watched as the tattered Boer army limped into Pretoria. I will remember that awful moment the rest of my life. It wasn't Lord Roberts that we all feared. It was the utter collapse of the Boer rank and file, which staggered our great leaders, end quote. All were despondent. President Creer himself left the capital in early June, bound for Portuguese territory. He would spend the rest of the war advocating for his people among the rulers of Europe. Many gave moral support. None gave anything more. On June 4th, Pretoria was in confusion. Looting was rife. There was no leadership to speak of. Dennis Rietz was there. This is what he saw, Quote, all semblance of order or resistance evaporated. Our people vanished like ice skipping over water and transforming directly into vapor. Wherever one looked, men were abandoning their units. The universal cry was, The war is over! The streets were swarming with leaderless men, and all was utter confusion, with looting of shops and supply dumps, all mixed in with a great deal of cursing of our leaders. Occasional British shells fell into the city, sending shrapnel knifing through bodies of men. Soon we rode on, looking for our old unit, but we couldn't find them. Small groups of men spread out across the felled, disorganized insects." Another Boer contemporary recalled the bitter defeats this way, to flee. What could be more bitter than that? Many times when I was forced to yield to the enemy, I felt so degraded that I could scarcely look a kid in the face. Did I call myself a man? And if so, why did I run? No one can guess the horror which overcame me when I had to retreat. But what could we do, outnumbered as we were ten to one? Boer resistance continued. Jan Smuts had saved all essential war supplies, and when he tried to confiscate the gold and coins from the Mint and Standard Bank, the manager challenged Smuts' authority to take the money. Smuts snapped his fingers and five revolvers were thrust into the bank manager's face, and you know what happened? The bank manager had a sudden change of heart. He even helped Smuts load the gold himself. It's not papers or judges that hold a country together. Often it's just force. And if you don't believe me, ask the 12 journalists who've been killed this year in Mexico. Many of the Boer leaders seriously considered surrender at a war council held on June 2nd. Even Creer, the man with a faith like a prophet of old, was considering it. But Stain, president of the Orange Free State, cursed anyone who even talked about surrender. He was more bitter than a pint of Indian pale ale, and he told everyone, We will never surrender! Never! But our capital's fallen, one man protested. Stane pointed to the endless feld all around them and said, Here is our capital! And then he pointed at the deep blue sky like a captain of industry admiring his own skyscraper. And there is our capital, where no man can storm it. Anyone who even considers surrendering is a coward. Never surrender! Stain's brutal stand worked. It galvanized and shamed the other Afrikaner leaders to fall in behind him. A young captain named Danny Theron stood up and made a violent speech against traitors. That galvanized the men, and they decided that the honor of the Boer folk and their personal honor demanded that they fight to the death. The war would go on. If it was a movie, the Boer's movie would be called Hard to Kill. The whole situation reminds me of how different these men were from modern Westerners, and it made me think of this quote from Ernst Jünger, the famous German writer, Faith is losing its hold on life, and should the day come when we cannot understand what made a man willingly lay down his life for his country, and this day will come, then it will all be over. The very notion of fatherland will have died, and perhaps we shall then look back with envy on the time it was a living faith. As we envy now the saints their profound, unconquerable faith. In the cold light of reason, everything is weighed up and judged and ridiculed. It was granted to us to live in the invisible light of the noblest sentiments. That is our inestimable privilege. End quote. Has the day come? Last year, all across the West, hundreds of thousands of our people died from drug overdoses, including members of my own family. I've personally seen mothers weep. Endless weepings, screaming so loud the neighborhood dogs howled like a Ginsberg poem. I've personally witnessed a mother confront a drug dealer who smirked in her grief-wracked face the way ill-disciplined eighth graders sneer at female teachers. It choked my soul to even think upon it, let alone witness it. But what is worse is all of you who witness it and sneer back in my face and don't even care. And that drug dealer is back on the streets of Sandy Springs, Georgia, just like there's one back on your street. Is it really all over? Are there more abortions than births? Has the notion of civilization and family and faith, are they really all dead? It's you who will decide. You smiling and smirking as you listen to this. I see you in my mind. I can picture you personally. I really can. But don't let numbers discourage you. A hundred years ago, there were 400 Hutterites in America. Now there are 40,000. In another century, there will be 400,000. There is a way forward. There is always hope. President Stain didn't care about numbers, and neither should you. Do what's right, no matter if the rest of the world jumps off a bridge. Don't take the grand deluge with them. In the midst of every fall, there is a seed of a new spring, and so it will be for all good people everywhere. Anyways, Roberts took possession of Pretoria on June 5th. He sincerely believed the war was over, and all that remained was for the Boers and the English to negotiate the terms of the Boers' inevitable surrender. Roberts waited five days for the Boers to send delegates for the negotiations, but the delegates never came. Instead, the Boers sent a battle. On June 10th, General Louis Botha fought it out with Roberts' men at the Battle of Diamond Hill, killing or wounding 180 of them and slipped off back into the land ocean of the Wild Feld. Meanwhile, Tvet scooped up 60 million pounds worth of supplies in today's money. In addition, he killed or wounded 140 British soldiers and took another 486 men prisoner, and so the war entered the third phase on June 2nd, a phase that is aptly summarized in the Cambridge history of South Africa like this, quote, After the crushing blows of defeat in the Battle of Pardeburg in February 1900, In the enemy occupation of Pretoria in June of that year, the tactical basis of the Boer War effort changed. Giving up on the impossible objective of trying to halt the British advance, commando forces switched to irregular tactics and launched running attacks on their enemy's columns and supply lines. British commanders responded to the guerrilla tactics by adopting and intensifying a scorched earth policy and rounding up civilians. The Boer guerrilla tactics drove Roberts mad with rage. He decided if the Afrikaners wouldn't come in willingly to negotiate, he would make them negotiate. He told his leading commanders, quote, More stringent measures must be taken as punishment for wrecking trains, destroying telegraph lines, and all other guerrilla activities in our new colonies, end quote. Thomas Packenham describes the change in policy like this. For a long time, there had been little effective check on the natural tendency of an army to loot and destroy enemy property. Now there came advice to the generals to burn selected Afrikaner farms, and so the British began to leave a new kind of signature in the sky behind them, a pillar of black smoke from burning farms and outbuildings as British columns made their way across the Feld, end quote. Here's what one young lieutenant named Phillips witnessed in the second march to the sea, The worst moment is when you first come to a house. The people thought we wanted refreshment and the women brought us milk. How naive they were. Then we had to tell them we had come to burn everything down. I didn't know which way to look. We gave the inmates, three women and some children, ten minutes to clear their clothes and family treasures out of the house, and my men then fetched bundles of straw and proceeded to burn it down. The old grandmother was very angry. Most of the women were too miserable to even curse. The women cried, and the children stood by, holding on to them, looking with large, frightened eyes at the burning house. The house, that until five minutes ago, had been their entire world. Now it was a charring heap of destruction. They won't forget that sight. I'll bet a million pounds they'll never forget it. We rode away and left them, a hopeless little group standing among their few household goods, a few beds, furniture and valuables strewn across the fields, the crackling of fire in their ears and smoke and flames steaming overhead. That night, as I sat in the comfort of my tent and camp, it became bitterly cold, and I thought of the women and children alone in the field. Then the sun came up, and we rode out. And we did it all again, end quote. The goal of the burnings was to make examples of the guerrillas. The goal was to make them come and fight, just like the endless bombers Nixon sent over the children of Saigon. But Roberts didn't know the Boer people. The hardcore folk would never surrender, come what may. British eyewitnesses constantly remarked how the women still wanted to fight, even as all their belongings burned around them. The English would ask the women how long they thought the war would continue. A historian explains what would inevitably happen next. The women seemed confused by the question. Of course we shall go on fighting Meneer, the women responded. But how long, the Englishman asked. Oh, as long as it takes, until you all go away. Their homes were in flames. Husbands and sons were living like wild tigers in the field, and the women sat there watching it all with the same patience, the same absolute confidence in ultimate victory as the guerrillas. Some of the more intelligent British officers were disturbed by it and impressed they had never seen anything quite like it before this big primitive kind of patriotism but roberts wasn't just burning down farms he sent his endless legions in pursuit of the guerrillas native runners had told him of a large group of boers defending novport in the mountains near the modern day botswana border there were six wagon roads in two would be blocked while the english attacked three more one road would be left open the attack commenced on July 23rd, and the British drove the 5,000 free state men before them. A modern historian takes up the story, quote, For a whole week, the Boers had wasted time. The unguarded wagon road had remained open until the 28th, but many of the men had no fight left in them. They just wanted to go home. Originally, the plan had been for the Boer army in the mountains to split into four divisions and continue the fight, end quote. But as soon as de Wet and President Stain had left, the remaining Boer officers began to long for home and surrender. Such is the power of charisma and personality. This is what men mean when they speak of leadership. Leadership comes from the heart, like President Stain. It can't be faked and learned at some BS conference. And so, leaderless, the 4,300 men surrendered. On August 10th, it was all over. The English had sustained 275 casualties during the operation. DeVette found out on August 11th, and the news was like a second fall of man, like Adam taking the apple from Eve all over again. He later said, the news was nothing short of an act of murder. I gnashed my teeth to think that a nation should so easily run to its own ruin. DeVette never considered surrender. To the English, he was a kind of genius. He was blunt, rough like the country around him, brutal to any man who wouldn't fight. He was five foot nine and broadly built. He ran his camp with Germanic efficiency. Discipline was severe. Sentries who slept on duty were punished by being thrown on ant heaps and shot if they moved. There was very little sleeping on duty or surrender in Devette's camp. An English officer described Devette's tactics like this. His method of fighting is as follows: he gets his wagons under way and then places his fighting man in position and then hands over to his second in command. After this he gallops to the head of the wagon and drives back any skulker by fierce invective and if that fails with his fighting stick, beating the men back into the fighting line. Once there he resumes command. Davet is a wonderful man. In August this great general was on the run, his 2500 guerrillas chased by 40000 British but they couldn't catch him. He was as elusive as a fox, a second Bigfoot. The secret was his specially trained scouts who read The Land and Enemy as easy as you can read a book. On August 11th, DeVette and President Stain arrived at Oliphant's Neck, a pass through a mountain range. There, 7,600 Englishmen were waiting to block his escape. But the man who was supposed to block him wanted the glory of capturing DeVette and Stane, and he set out to meet DeVette in open combat on the field. What he did was miss DeVette completely. DeVette had outrun him. Franz Johann Pretorius gives the reasons for DeVette's success. Quote, Excellent tactics combined with mobility, strict discipline, and the efficiency of the scouts led by Commandant Danny Theron were largely responsible for DeVette's success. The weakness of the British communications and intelligence systems worked in DeVette's advantage. End quote. Meanwhile, Roberts expelled hundreds of Boer women and children from Pretoria in open railway cars like they were coal, a commodity. He sent them to General Botha's line with a message saying he refused to feed and house Boer civilians while Botha's men raided the railway lines. On July 4th, the two largest British forces in South Africa, Buller's Army operating in Natal and the Commander-in-Chief Roberts' Army operating from Pretoria, met. Now, both armies would strike at General Botha's 2,500 men and win a decisive victory for England, but it wasn't to be. Buller's massive force chased Botha for months, but never caught the old fox. By the end of October, Buller returned to England and resumed his old job training the Army Corps. He received no honors. And in early December, Roberts told a crowd in Natal the war was practically over. On October 25th, Roberts annexed the Transvaal. Routed at the Battle of Belfast, Bota's army split into fragments, a few thousand men pursued by three different armies. Two thousand Afrikaner and foreign volunteers fighting with them surrendered to the Portuguese after making a spectacular bonfire of 1,500 railway cars and all their contents, destroying their artillery rather than letting it fall into the hands of their enemies. At the same time, Roberts ordered more farms burned as a means of denying food and shelter to the guerrillas. All over the Free State, the horizon was filled with black columns where houses were disintegrating into the luminescent flames. Eyewitnesses said the sky glowed from the fires, and then Roberts said the war was over and went home to England. Robert's second-in-command, Horatio Kitchener, was left in charge as commander-in-chief. Many in England thought the bloodshed was over. It was just the beginning. The preview before the main feature plays. And Kitchener, the commander-in-charge, hated everything about South Africa. He literally wrote to the politicians in Britain, I hate this country and the people and the whole thing more every day. And at this point in the war, 3,000 Boers were killed or maimed for life. 15,000 more languished in prisoner of war camps throughout the British Empire. All the main towns and capitals and railways in South Africa were in British hands. By October 1900, Delaray had taken large swaths of the Transvaal back under his control, supplying men and food to the guerrilla effort. That's when the leaders of the Boer people met and decided to keep fighting come what may. The leaders decided to attack Natal in the Cape Colony, where British farm burning would be impossible because it was their own territory, and they would force the Boers living in the Cape to feed them whether they liked it or not. Their first strike came at the Battle of Nuhadot. There the Boers took 650 men at a loss of 30 of their own, and the guerrilla war would go on like this for a year. The English would lose a few thousand men to the Boers in four or five different small engagements, but then the British would close the bag on a few thousand Boers in one big engagement. The whole war had seen the same pattern. It just repeated over and over and over on a smaller scale as the war dragged ever on. The next Boer strike came on December 17th, when 2,000 Boers invaded the Cape Colony, but the English had already prepared for this. Like an NRA nightmare, they had gone door-to-door to to any Afrikaner farm in the northern sections of the Cape Colony and simply confiscated their firearms, their excess food, even their horses, which you have to remember is like taking a man's car in these days. By January 17th, martial law was declared for the entire Cape Colony, except the ports. The colony raised a local militia 10,000 strong who knew the area intimately. Few Afrikaners rallied to their kinsmen who raided the colony. A few even joined with the British. Most just wanted to be left alone. In February 1901, Kitchener sent ex-Boer fighters who had surrendered to convince their former comrades still in arms to negotiate terms. Kitchener hoped they would convince their former compatriots to turn their back on freedom and the hopes of their nation and surrender. Pete DeVett, the famous general's own brother, was one of the men Kitchener sent from Pretoria. Who knew puppet strings could extend so long? And Kitchener's new Boer Pets mouthed the phrases their master commanded them to mouth. What they got in return was more brutal than a death metal song. Thomas Packenham explains, quote, When these surrendered Boers tried to explain to their brothers in the field that the game was up, they found, on the contrary, that the game was still going and they had bet their own lives on the outcome. The Boers court-martialed and sentenced as traitors any Afrikaner who collaborated with the British. One man was first flogged and then shot down by General Frondman, who hemorrhaged in an epilepsy of rage at the mere sight of the traitors." Many men were sentenced and duly executed, their brains blown out the back of their heads by Mauser fire. There's a great movie about it called Ferrer's. You should watch it if you can find it. And General Botha, and the acting president of the Transvaal Schalk Berger, declaimed, We will never discuss peace. We're fighting for our independence, and we will do so until the bitter end. Every action produces a reaction, and so it was with the guerrilla war raging across South Africa. The Empire's politicians wanted the war over. It was costing the taxpayers more than 6 million pounds a month, more than 724 million pounds in today's money. Kitchener reacted by organizing huge drives across the countryside. Success would be defined by the weekly bag of killed, captured, or wounded guerrillas. Afrikaner historian Franz Johan Pretorius expands on Kitchener's strategy like this, "...Kitchener employed a number of strategies to end the war. First, he continued Robert's scorched-earth policy. The republics were subjected to systematic devastation. Whole towns, as well as thousands of farmhouses, were burnt down or extensively damaged." This onslaught, on the Boers' means of survival, was intensified by the wholesale destruction of all food. Livestock was killed in enormous numbers, and all fields of grain were burnt and destroyed. As a second strategy, the concentration camp system was extended, as more civilians, chiefly women and children, were interned. Kitchener hoped the men would surrender as a consequence." End quote. The land was to be utterly laid waste, a second Carthage. The entire civilian population of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal countryside would be removed and placed in concentration camps, bear camps of TP-like tents, dumped in the middle of deserts near convenient rail stops. In these haphazardly organized camps, hundreds of thousands of Afrikaner women and children were sick and starved and ultimately killed through maltreatment. Ten people would often share one tent. Conditions that would get prison wardens sentenced to life in jail were the norm for the camps. And with the poor diet, disease ran through the bore women and children like the angel of death. And by the middle of 1901, more than 60,000 men, women, and children were imprisoned in concentration camps. They were herded into the camps, exhausted, destitute, starving, to the camps called refugee camps. What they were was death camps. By September 1901, there were 34 concentration camps housing 110,000 inhabitants, if you could call it housing, more like collection pens. Most of the inhabitants were children. 28,000 Boers died in the camps, 26,251 of these were women and children, and more than 22,000 of these were under the age of 16. One eyewitness described the camp like this, quote, One woman named Miss Kutza had eight children, four of whom were already dead. One day I passed her tent and saw three little boys lying on a blanket on the ground, and they were covered in ants. The mother, suffering from a terrible fever, lay on a small bed, barely conscious. A girl of seven lay beside her, also ill. To add to their misery, the tent was full of lice. The poor little boys had to keep the household going, fetching polluted water, although their little legs could barely carry them. End quote. One Afrikaner historian lists the reasons for the high mortality rate. Quote, in the first place, there were unhygienic conditions as a result of war. Pollution of the air, water, and soil was taking place. The war also had a detrimental effect on food manufacture and the raising of cattle. Together with the violent outbreak of measles and pneumonia, these conditions were the cause of many deaths, particularly in children. The other reason was maladministration by the camp administrators. First, camp locations were poorly chosen. At Standerton, the soil was a soggy morass during the rainy seasons, while the winters were bitterly cold. Second, low standards of order and cleanliness were maintained. Third, the food that did arrive was of particularly low quality and not enough of it was given to the family of rebellious boers. End quote. Many women were subsisting in makeshift shelters in the bush. Some of these were raped or assaulted, causing tremendous anxiety among the Boer population. Nannie de la Rey, the wife of the famed General Coas de la Rey, provided an example of how Boer women survive without homes. Nanny moved across the bush on a wagon with her children, a few cows, sheep, and chickens for the last 19 months of the war. The whole time, Nanny had to work to avoid capture and avoid the death camps. By the end of the war, more than 2,540 families were still wandering the field, refusing to surrender. This is the hardcore of a people. These were the ones who would never surrender. By May 1901, Kitchener's policy of harrying the Boers across South Africa was reaping dividends. In January, 859 Boers were taken. In February, it was 1,770. In March, it was 1,470. In April, the total was 2,435. But remember, the British are spending multiple fortunes on this war, and at the current rate, Kitchener's policy of relentlessly driving the Boers could go on for months, perhaps even years. More drastic action needed to be taken. A modern historian recounts Kitchener's next step, quote, The answer to ending the war was barbed wire and the blockhouse. These tin and stone pillbox structures called blockhouses were the key to making Kitchener's mobile columns more effective. Kitchener would build a gigantic grid mesh of blockhouse lines, barbed wire alternating with blockhouses, each miniature fort within rifle range of each other. The blockhouses themselves were like immobile tanks, impervious to rifle fire. As long as the Boers didn't get their hands on any serious artillery, the blockhouses should be impregnable to Boer weapons. End quote. The winter of 1901 was the worst time for the guerrillas. The Transvaal and the Orange Free State were utterly laid waste. There was no food. The men avoided the British and simply tried to stay alive. Boer women fled into the open field in small groups to avoid the camps, living like cave women. Many of the Boer leaders were wavering, seriously considering surrender. Only Generals DeVette and Delaray, along with President Stain, still tried to rally the downhearted. They decided to send Jan Smuts into the Cape Colony to rally the 3,000 Afrikaner rebels who still resisted the 50,000 British hounding their every step. The English had already arrested 10,000 Cape Afrikaners and packed them off to jails across the world. This was 10% of the white population of the Cape Colony. Smuts was relentlessly harassed during his entire journey across the Cape Colony. Still, he fought on. Linking up with Boer elements and even going on the offensive, in April 1902, his actions effectively tied down 50,000 British troops and cost the empire hundreds of millions of pounds in today's money. On August 7, 1901, Kitchener demanded the surrender of all Afrikaners still in the field by September 15th. If this failed to happen, Kitchener would permanently banish all officers and political leaders from South Africa forever. The men would lose what was left of their families after losing all their property. Still, the hardcore Boers vowed to fight on to the bitter end. They became known as the Bitter Enders, while the Boers, who wanted to surrender, were given the moniker Hands Uppers. Sounds better in Afrikaans. South African historian Franz Johan Pretorius picks up the story. In the Orange Free State, the guerrilla war dragged on, characterized by Boer attacks on isolated British columns, patrols, and convoys. In other words, more of the same old thing. But the British had learned how to fight, and they began raiding small parties of boars and daring night raids, sometimes capturing a dozen men, sometimes capturing even a hundred. Before dawn on Christmas Day 1901, DeVette struck when the British least expected it, like a prequel to the Tet Offensive, end quote. The British were getting ready to read their Christmas mail when 500 screaming boars swarmed up the steep and poorly guarded western slope of the hill and overwhelmed the 470 English soldiers in their sleep. 58 were killed. The prisoners had all their property confiscated and were then released. The Afrikaners feasted on the food they captured, gorging themselves, wolves devouring a carcass. When Kitchener found out about the raid, he went ballistic. Now the real war starts, one novelist had Kitchener say. Playtime is over. That's when Kitchener implemented his new model drives. He built fortress grids across every inch of the countryside. Even more blockhouses were constructed. His drives became great sweeps during which his columns stretched out in lines 80 kilometers long, drove the Boers from the entire region where essential English communications were located. There simply was no way for the Boers to operate in these conditions. They were progressively squeezed out and, of course, many, many more were captured. A modern historian explains the results. During February and March 1902, Kitchener deployed as many as 30,000 troops in several armored trains in three attempts to trap De Vette against the railway line in the northeastern Free State. The new model drives worked with the Germanic efficiency of a BMW, the constant pursuit, the constant strain of unbroken fighting war on Boer Morale and the British destroyed the Afrikaners' meager food supplies as they swept across the land. Starvation for the men in the field became a serious problem. Meanwhile, in September 1901, Bota invaded Natal with 2,000 men, achieving very little against the 20,000 English who popped up out of nowhere like prairie dogs to attack him. However, on October 30th, his commando mopped up an isolated column at Bakken in the eastern Transvaal. This was the last major engagement of the war. While many skirmishes continued to take place and cost the British Empire enormous sums of money, the main lines of communication were largely finally secured in the eastern Transvaal by December 1901, but not in the western Transvaal. There was a ghost haunting the western Transvaal, a shape-shifting ghost, which turned from antelope to lion in the blink of an eye, a ghost that could not be caught, a ghost named General Coos de la Rey. Time and again, Kitchener sent his best man to capture the wolf-like De La Ray and his pack of hardcore citizen soldiers, and time and again, De La Ray defeated all of them. In January 1902, the latest general to hunt De La Rey was Methuen, he had legions of joiners with him, Afrikaners who had gone over to the British side to hunt their brothers like animals. Methuen tried the new tactic of great, epic, nocturnal drives across the fell to ensnare De La Rey. Soon Methuen would achieve what no other English officer could. He would capture that devil De La Rey, and then the bloody war would finally end for it once and all. Such was his plan but God had other plans for Methuen. De La Rey suddenly burst on him out of nowhere while he was spread out and disorganized. The Battle of Twebosh on the Little Hearts River took place on March 7, 1902 and was De La Rey's most brilliant victory. His veterans stormed the rear guard of Methuen's convoy in mounted formation, firing from the saddle like John Wayne in a John Ford film. These were no pig farmers. These were hardcore veterans, and they cut down the English the way modern farm equipment scythes through fields of grain. De La Raye lost 34 men. The British lost 189 killed or wounded and 859 taken prisoner. Methuen was wounded in the leg and captured, but De La Raye had mercy on him. He released Methuen so he could receive better medical treatment than the Boers could provide. On April 1902, peace talks began, and so did the last major battle of the war at the Battle of Rodeval. The Boers tried to storm a British column but were beaten back, losing 200 men in the process. Still, the peace talks wore on as the war continued and the money was spent like water. The first breakthrough came when Dr. Abraham Kuyper, the famous reformed theologian and Dutch prime minister, offered to mediate between the Boer republics and the British. Representatives of the Free State and Transvaal met on May 15th and 17th, 1902 at a small town called Vereeniging. Sixty men were present, all representing the guerrillas still resisting in the field of combat. President Steyn had contracted a muscular paralysis, and yet still insisted the Boers continue the struggle. Barely able to move, let alone speak, he mouthed at the delegates, Neer SURRENDER! DIE! DIE IN Defeld DIE WITH HONOR! Never surrender! The men exchanged wide-eyed looks of surprise when they heard it. Still, despite President Stane's exhortation, some men were in favor of surrender. It was the plight of the women and children in the concentration camps, and the increased threat from armed natives who were raiding isolated Boer families, roaming the Feld, that motivated them to surrender. Then there was the attack on May 6th, when 56 Boers were killed by Zulus, and 48 more were wounded. There was the devastation of the land in the two republics, not to mention the large number of Afrikaners joining with the British and threatening to destroy the Afrikaner people as a nation forever. There was the endless reprisals, starvation of families, and even themselves, it was all becoming too much. With the local Africans and most of the Afrikaner population fighting against them, there could be no hope for independence. Many of the men openly were worried about the continued physical existence of the Boer people. Devet was the only other prominent leader who insisted on continuing the struggle. But even De La Rey rose up and said, We vowed to fight to the bitter end, but has not the bitter end already come? Not for us, was devette's laconic reply, but few heads nodded in agreement. No, the delegates decided to make peace. They decided to make a list of proposals for Kitchener on May 19th, which would lead to peace with honor. The delegates' biggest concession was to accept British protectorate status. Kitchener refused to conduct negotiations on any basis but complete surrender, but Milner the man who had helped instigate the war in the first place, sent the Boer proposals to the British government, sensing that there could be a chance to end the costly war once and for all. The British government accepted the terms and gave major concessions to the Boers. The Boers would still be able to use their language in schools, and of course, self-government would be granted to the former republics. The prisoners of war would be returned, Britain would provide three million pounds in order to help rebuild the country, and Native Africans would effectively be denied the vote. These were serious concessions. On May 29th and 31st, the Boer delegates met again and voted to accept the terms with heavy hearts. Fifty-four agreed, and only six wanted to keep fighting. On May 31st, 1902, the Peace Treaty of Verenich was signed at the Melrose House in Pretoria. The Boers had lost their independence. Tens of thousands of family members and almost all their property. The world thought the Afrikaner problem had been solved forever. But we know that what doesn't kill a people often only makes them stronger. And the Afrikaner people took over the whole of South Africa. The Cape and Natal, the everything. They were hard to kill. Many Boer families before and after the war averaged nine children. Power is the capacity to nullify the enemy. A large people is hard to nullify. And this goes for all people. Afrikaners, Malays, Amish, Zulus, Jew and Greek, male and female. And the Boers had large families. By the 1960s, Afrikaner families began to average just three children. Today, the Afrikaner family is below replacement level. The Afrikaner people withering from the combined effects of immigration and postmodern Malays. If any people wants to be free, the path to freedom is the path of strength. And so I'll end this podcast with the song of the evil one by the famous Afrikaner poet N.P. Van Vicklo. Do you now know me? Have you looked in the mirror and known whom you see? From the flaming city would you fly for your life? I'll fly with you, close at hand like a wife. The many believe that they know me at sight, but I'm hidden in luster, too close to the light. And when they give warning or utter wise words, the sound of my voice like an echo is heard. And the swift one flee, from whom and where? I am not hideous, nor am I fair. And wherever they flee, they bear me too. In the gray-white grooves, their nerves run through. I am within you, entwined in rank, like ancient roots in a dark earth bank. And before the daybreak can begin, through both your eyes, I, even I, stream in. I am your beings underground, and I stay at your heel like a faithful hound. When God this earth, this silver ball, in joyful play from his hand let fall, I was the chaos. It floated in the formless void, bleak and grim, when a still primeval pool, before the coming of fish or net, the first white cell did beget, I was the darkness lurking beyond, cold earth and rock beneath the pond. I was the shadow in God's wave, what he left behind him I would take. And now that you're growing towards mastery, the umbilical cord that binds you is me. I am your beings underground and I stay at your heel like a faithful hound. Although you are bright and tall and free, don't imagine that you can be rid of me or that you distract me from my own grim bent. I may be a hound, but I stick to the scent. On every horizon, I stand and bark. And when God's spirit surmounting the dark seeks of being more lovely than yours can be, then I'll be bright and tall and free. Where will you go? And on what good ship? All the world is shallows and rocks that rip. From the flaming city would you fly for your life? I'll fly with you like a wife. Do you now know me? Have you looked in the mirror and known whom you see? And that's it for me this month. I want to thank everybody who writes in. I really appreciate it. And I really do read every email you send me. Even if it takes forever to respond, I get busy too. You know how life is. I want to thank Richard and all the guys working out the Helena Fire Department in Montana. Stay warm out there, Richard. Don't eat too much of that five alarm chili. I want to thank you for listening. And This is the part of the show where I'm supposed to ask you to do a bunch of stuff for me forget that. Numbers don't mean anything. Some shows are the British Army and some are President Stane and his few thousand. I'm Dr. Luke Wolf and I'll never surrender. I don't need money to do this. I don't need you to review this show to do this. We'll keep it going to the bitter end because no one else will. And until then, I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.